Uh, I asked the, we had the Holy Spirit uh, in you conference yesterday, and I asked folks there when I was teaching, um, if the rapture doesn't happen, how many of you plan to die someday? Okay, I guess I caught them by surprise, caught you by surprise. Uh, the correct answer is that you should raise your hand, okay? So I'm going to ask it again. If the rapture doesn't happen, how many of you plan to die someday? All right, now it's not something we're fond of thinking about, although it does merit some of our attention and, and, and focus and conversation. And uh, rather than talking about the last day of my life, let's expand it because this weekend I want to talk about how Jesus spent his last week of his life. And we're going to focus on, starting on Sunday, Palm Sunday, really we're going to just go Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we're not going to go all the way to Thursday evening where he had the Last Supper. But if it was the last week of your life, imagine the intentionality you'd have. The people you want to make sure you talk to, the things you want to make sure you said, maybe the things that you want to do just one more time or the last time or maybe for the first time. Well, Jesus knew it was the last week of his life as they pulled together this ad hoc parade called Palm Sunday. And uh, the story of Palm Sunday, let me read it for you. Jesus told his disciples, okay, picture this. He tells them, I want you to go into town. There'll be a, you know, side of the street, there'll be a donkey tied up and it's, it's colt. Uh, it hasn't been written on yet. I want you to untie them. If anybody stops you, just tell them the master has need of it and then come bring it here. That would kind of be like, Cody, if I said, okay, I want you to go to UDF. There's going to be a Lexus with the keys in it. I want you to get it. If anybody stops, you say, Pastor Stan needs it, and you bring it here, okay? Can you say out of your comfort zone, all right? Jesus is way about not being in your comfort zone. He'll pull you out of it a lot if you just listen, if you respond. So the, the Bible says in Matthew 21 that the disciples went and did just as he directed them. Now, it's significant. He was so intentional. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. So the people that are reading this are very familiar with, with Genesis through Malachi. It's the Old Testament. That is their history. That is their law. Scribes and Pharisees were experts in the law and they tried to trip Jesus up on legal grounds. Well, we see it as, as spiritual conversations. They're really often doing deep dives into their law of the day, trying to get him to say something that's legally incorrect that they might throw him into prison. And so that whole exchange of finding a donkey and its colt is a quote, a reference to Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9, where that prophecy from the Old Testament is fulfilled. One more way, Matthew is saying, hello, Jewish readers, this is the one you've been anticipating. So it says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. He brought the donkey and the colt and laid it on them, laid on them their garments on which he sat. Most of the multitude spread their garments in the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees, hence palm trees, Palm Sunday. And they were spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those following after him were crying out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Give me a loud Hosanna. Hosanna. All right, it means Lord praise, Lord save. It's a, it's a word of declaration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's Palm Sunday. And as Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, knowing how fickle the crowd would be because by Friday, that same crowd would be trying to crucify him. Jesus knew this is, this is it, my final days. And so if you have the app, you can follow along in the points we want to look at. What did Jesus say? What did he do? And uh, in 
The first point, I want to talk about the priority and the power of prayer because he makes that very clear. So the first thing he does that's recorded once he gets into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. When he gets to the temple, they are, there are tables there with people sitting behind there. They're called money changers. Uh, and you had to have a sacrifice to offer to the priest that he would offer for your sins. And depending on your socioeconomic status would depend on what was required of you for the different sacrifices. And so if you had to buy a pair of turtle loves, you had to buy a goat or whatever, you would pay him uh, these money changers and then they would give you the sacrifice you could take to the priest. Jesus gets infuriated because he sees how they are basically trying to make bank on these people's religious practices, taking advantage of them financially. They're, they're marking up, there's no competition. There's a huge markup and they're, they're price gouging, if you will. He gets furious, makes his own makeshift whip and just has at these guys and flipping over their tables, all the money goes scattering. Did I say comfort zone? Can you imagine me, the disciples watching this happen? It's a sermon series I'd, I'd love to preach. I, I keep telling myself, I need to put one together. I would love to preach a sermon series titled De-Nicing Jesus. Because we have made Jesus just so nice, polite. Don't let, me, don't let me interfere. Pardon me. Jesus was a lot of things. He was amazing. He was not nice. He was willing to offend. And, and the confrontation there, he then says to them in Matthew 21, verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you're making it a robber's den, a den of thieves. And that is true to this day. God's house is meant to be called a house of prayer. This past Wednesday, we had a great, it was the first Wednesday prayer service on the last Wednesday of the month because this week is the first Wednesday, but they're practicing for Easter. So we backed it up a week. I'm convinced that the effectiveness of our God-sized vision is directly linked to the fact that everywhere we've gone around the world, we've first gone in prayer. And we've, every month we pray some dimension of our God-sized vision for the last 15 years. And boy, last Wednesday was no exception. God shows up in just undeniable ways. If you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I don't know what's more important on Wednesday night, the first Wednesday month than that, but boy, make it a priority to make God's house a house of prayer. Later, he walks by a fig tree. Some of the things that Jesus does, I don't fully understand. But some of the things I do, I don't fully understand. He sees this fig tree and curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. The disciples are like, whoa, did you see that? And, and Jesus says to them that, uh, you know, if you have faith and don't doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, but you'll say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and it will happen. So not only is prayer to be a priority, but there is power in our prayer, mountain moving prayer, as is often said. Let's understand when Jesus is, it's important to understand when he's using metaphor and hyperbole and when he's speaking literally, because there is no record in history that any follower of Christ ever prayed and a mountain was cast into the sea. So he's talking symbolically here. And that makes more sense because a lot of you are facing an Everest in your own life. Whether it's your marriage, it's your health, whether it's your own internal mountain of pain and struggle, maybe it's your career, your finances, your kids, I, I don't know what. But as, as you exercise faith, faith is like a muscle. If you exercise it, you gain it. If you don't, it atrophies. 
as you become a person of prayer, as you become a person who is passionate about your prayer and it builds your faith, you can develop mountain-moving faith and have mountain-moving prayers in your walk as you follow Christ. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that. He makes that statement. He, makes, he, he shows them my house is a house of prayer and you can have mountain-moving prayer because, guys, you're going to need it. I want you to remember this when you look back on my last week. Second, I thought it was kind of telling or appropriate. So I, I was like, why do I put that in there or not? But it's in the, it's in the three Gospels. Uh, and so Jesus talks, and it's, it's April, taxes and tithing. Everybody smile and say taxes and tithing. All right, because if you want to get out paying taxes, you came to the wrong place. Uh, because again, the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to trip him up. And they say, Rabbi, should we pay taxes to Caesar or pay taxes to the temple? You know, trying to... And he asked them, well, whose inscription is on the coin? And Matthew 22, verse 21, they said to him, Caesar's. They said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Once again, the Pharisees are angry because they can't really accuse him on that. And the people, they're, they're mind boggled because, wow, he, he always knows the right thing to say. But he tells us, pay your taxes and pay God. Give to God what is his, tithes and offerings. Give to Caesar what is his, tithes and offerings. So turn to your neighbor and tell him, pay your taxes. So you can't say, somehow I told you not to. I'm not going to prison with you. I'll visit you, but I'm not going with you. All right? So. And uh, in 23, 23, we're going to get to chapter 23 in a minute in a different way. But man, he just, no holds barred, goes after the Pharisees in that chapter. But in one of the verses, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And those are spices. I remember one time we illustrated that in a sermon. I had a plate with a pile of mint and dill and cumin. Then you, you sneeze, you blow it off. And, and they, would, they would get so precise as to get a tenth of their spices that they grew and, and give tithes on that. Getting real legalistic. And you neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done, tithing, without neglecting the others, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And see, we'll see how Jesus confronts religion and religiosity because it pays all kinds of meticulous attention to the outward appearance and to outward behavior, but it ignores change in the heart. And then he tells parables about heaven, several parables about heaven during his final days. A parable is a story with, with symbolic meaning. And there's really good news in these parables for us. I assume so. We'll validate it in a moment. But in Matthew 21, verse 33, he says, listen to another parable. He lets them know. Here's another symbolic story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. He goes on to then tell that he goes on this journey and, uh, and then when this harvest season comes, he sends slaves to, to collect what's due him and, and they mistreat these slaves, they beat them. And finally he decides, okay, I'm gonna send my son to collect what they owe and they kill his son and throw him out. Now, Jesus tells this story and if you understand Jewish history, the nation of Israel was known for killing their prophets. And so he's confronting them. And on top of that, he says, and now here's the son and you're about to kill him because they knew what they were planning to do. Imagine the rage that was stirring in his audience. 
Uh, he goes on a little later in 23, or 21 verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he gives this feast for his son, and all the invited guests have excuses why they don't come. So he says, fine, forget those guests. We're going to go into the highways and byways and compel people to come in. And again, the, the, the diss to the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish elite, is I'm the son, you're invited, and you've turned me down, so God is going to turn elsewhere. Both these parables are great news for us. At least I assume so. I'm going to let you validate that. If you for the most part, as far as you know, have no Jewish heritage. You are not Jewish, other than maybe you like bagels or, you know, cream cheese, whatever. Uh, but if, you, if you're not Jewish in any way that you know, would you just stand real quick? Maybe you did Ancestry.com or not, but you're not, you're not Jewish. Just stand, okay? Not your question, okay? I love matzo ball soup, but I'm not Jewish. All right, so I want you to, this, these two parables are really good news for us. So I want you to turn to three people standing and say, this is good news for us. Go on, just tell them. All right, you want to know what it is? Go ahead and have a seat. The good news is this. These parables he told to say, you know what? You Jewish people who've been looking for the Messiah, I'm him, and the good news of salvation from God through his son now is not limited, no longer limited just to Jewish people. It is for everyone. So if everybody who just stood would give a round of applause. And then in chapter 21, verse 28, he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He keeps telling these stories. And he came to his first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And that son says, okay, sure, Dad. Then he doesn't go. He goes to his second son and says, okay, I want you to go work in the vineyard. He goes, no, nah, I don't want to, Dad. But then he felt guilty, the Bible says, and he went. And he worked. So he asked the question, ask you the question, which one is the better son? How many of you vote the better son is the one who said yes and didn't go? How many of you vote that the better son is the one who said no, but then did go? Okay, that's the correct answer, so raise your hand. Okay, all right. You see, it doesn't do a whole lot of good if your son says yes, but then doesn't live out there yes. And the intent that Jesus has here is that it is important for you to live out your yes. How many of you are Christians? Let me see your hand. The vast majority, almost all of us, right? Which could be stated another way. How many of you had at some time in your life a stirring within you, it's the Holy Spirit saying you need Jesus and you prayed a prayer or whatever. You said yes to Jesus as your Savior. That's why you just raised your hand. I have said yes to Jesus. Warning, caution, admonition, encouragement. Be certain that you live out your yes. Yes is easy to say, harder to live. Amen. And one of the biggest dangers in, in contemporary Christianity and in a big church, you can sit in a service and you can raise your hand, pray a prayer, say yes to Jesus and never live it out. Never his intent. Live out your yes. All right, let's, let's look at point four. Love God, love others, love yourself. Would you read, read that with me? Love God, love others, love yourself. Do it again. Love God, love others, love yourself. 
Now, we did a deep dive in this in the earlier series, so I'm not going to go too far with it, but we're going to just go one more step. Let's become childlike. Not childish, childlike, okay? We're going to do hand motions. You ready? Everybody groan. Uh, all right. Okay, hands on your lap. Okay. And here's we go. Love God. Love others. Love yourself. One more time. You just acted out. If I had to summarize the whole Old Testament, all the books of the law, all the prophets, all, all the writings there, if I had to summarize it, it would be love God, love others, love myself. Because they asked Jesus that question. And uh, in Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Again, it's a, it's a legal authority. Understand, every, you ever have somebody ask you a question, put you on the spot, and you know they're trying to get you? You know, they want you to say the right thing, so they can win the argument, they can take you down, whatever. That's every conversation with the scribes and Pharisees. So what's the greatest commandment in the law? And so he quotes back to Deuteronomy. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I looked it up to be sure. didn't want to assume it. But that word, there's different words for love in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek language. If this one is agape, it's the love of God. And so we're to love God with the kind of love he gives to us. We're to love others with the kind of love God gives. And we're to love ourselves that way. So fast forward to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul describes that agape love that we're to have, and it's patient and kind. It doesn't keep a, a record of wrongs suffered. Rejoices all things, believes all things, bears all things, and endures all things. And, and we talked in the last series that if you don't have it for yourself, it's going to be difficult for you to give it to other people. If you aren't kind toward the person in your mirror, patient, forgiving, long-suffering. It's going to be real hard to give it to other people. And some of you, I don't know who it applies to, but love keeps no record of wrongs. Some of you need to stop keeping a record of your wrongs. Stop beating yourself up and just re-reciting re the shame, the failure, the whatever. Love yourself enough the way Jesus commanded you to. Stop doing that. Stop the record of wrongs. So you can have that towards other people as well. And then a sobering point that you cannot deny, and it's in his last days, and so he lands on this hard. God is an accountability God. I don't know about you, I like accountability-ish. Yeah, you know, it's good for me. I do better with deadlines and, and external expectations to some degree, but at the same time, I, we all like to dodge it some. And so let's look at it. And Jesus in Matthew 25 is telling another parable. And he said, for it is just like, what's it? It here is heaven. The kingdom of heaven is just like. You ever wonder what heaven's like? It's just like this from Jesus himself. It's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, the Bible says. And I used to kind of think five, two, one. And it's not talents like da, 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 da. It's, it's, it's units of money. 
they, it, was a, it was a weight, okay? And a talent of gold or silver, um, I did a little research, depending on where you look, it's like uh, several pounds. So that if you got two, uh, one talent at today's gold prices, 75 pounds of gold would be worth like almost 2 million bucks. I used to think, well, one talent, but two million, I'm in, right? And then the two million, the two talents is 150, or, or two million, I'm sorry, two million, four million, and over 10 million. Anyway, do the math. So the kingdom of heaven is just like a guy who is leaving. Okay, who's the guy? Say Jesus. He said, okay, guys, the kingdom of heaven is just like this. I'm leaving. And I'm entrusting to you a fortune. I'm entrusting you precious possessions. So what is he entrusted to us? Eternal life. Christ was in you, the hope of glory. We talked yesterday in the Holy Spirit seminar. As a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, to each believer is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You have spiritual gifts that Christ has given to you through the Holy Spirit in your life to use for everybody else's good. Not all the gifts, because if we did, we wouldn't need each other. He'll give you one, two, three out of a couple dozen. And as we work together, we form an amazing community. So turn your neighbor, tell him, did you know you're gifted? Just tell him, did you know you're gifted? Did you know you're gifted? And, and then it says in verse 19, now after a long time, say long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts. Say settled accounts. He comes back with expectations. Okay, I told you I was coming back. Been a long time. You might've thought I wasn't coming, but here I am. How many of you know Jesus has been gone a long time? But he's gonna come back and settle accounts. He said, the kingdom of heaven is just like this. So to the one who had five talents, he went and reinvested that, came back, I got five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of my kingdom. I'm gonna give you more to be accountable for than you proved yourself worthy. The one who had two and earned two more. Well done, good and faithful. He didn't say, well, why don't you earn five? He got five. No, he expects of us what he knows he can give to us. And so it differs, but it's totally fair and just and, and honest. Well done. To the one who got one, you know, I know you're, you have ridiculous, um, you have high expectations and you expect more than, than, than I was afraid I could give. So I'm, I'm gonna give you back what you gave me. He didn't live out his yes. Will you take this? Can I trust you with this? I want you to invest it. I'm gonna be gone. I want you to be a good steward of it. Yes, didn't live it out. You can read the rest of the story. It was not a happy ending for that man. Cast into outer darkness. Judgment. God's an accountability God. When you think about it, you know, 2 Corinthians, Paul describes it and he says, each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our deeds in the body. We can be recompensed for our deeds in the body, whether good or bad. Now, as a Christian, I'm not judged for my sins. Those are already paid for. But I'm going to be held accountable by this accountability God for the stewardship that I displayed for the eternal life and opportunities I was given. I kind of picture it, Jesus. So there I am. He, he, he returns. I'm before him. I'm giving an account. Tell me what's up. How'd it go? I left heaven. Going to be the first mind-blowing aha we get when we get to heaven is we can't believe Jesus left heaven to come to earth, to be born in a barn, 
to be treated the way he was treated on earth and, and then to allow himself to be tortured to death unfairly, to be buried in a grave and then to conquer death, rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and then to not leave me alone, but to give me and every believer the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to go with it. And then he says, by the way, I'm gonna entrust you to fulfill the mission I started. I want you to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to reserve all that I commanded you. And when you're on that mission, that journey, I will never forsake you. He says, with that all said and all that I gave you and the time and the resources and the people and the opportunities, the spiritual gifts, what'd you do with it? Paul says that we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And yea, for the person who is able to stand there and their life will show that I lived out my yes. Parents, I want to help you recalibrate your priorities Every parent around you in our society thinks that the most important thing is how popular their kid is or if they get on the AAU team or they make varsity or get the scholarship or, their po- or whatever the case might be. The, no, parents, the greatest priority to raise your son or daughter for is to someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ, have a smile come across his face and maybe he'll say, you must have had great parents to raise you because you lived out your yes. Well done. And then let's talk about the woe. Woe to spiritual arrogance. Jesus has no tolerance for people who want to act like faith is, a, is an exclusive club and hopefully you're good enough to measure up. And so he, he just has right at the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, just boom. And in Matthew 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Understand, picture attorneys that are hostile to you, wanting to throw you into prison. And that's who he's talking to. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. They're already plotting his death. You hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And, and you, it gets worse from there. He says again in verse 14, woe to you, 15, woe to you, 16, woe to you, 23, 25, 27, 28. Woe to you, you hypocrites, you vipers, you, you, you're, you're on unwashed tombs. And he goes on and on, just berates them. How dare you take the word of God, the truth of God, the hope of salvation, and make it some legalistic good luck to get into that. And because religion is all concerned with the outside. And Jesus is like, no, it's about the inside. Take care of the inside and the outside will take care of itself. Religiosity has wounded and deflected many from the kingdom. One day I was talking to a couple guys that are in CR and the one guy said, you know, I haven't felt this way my whole life, but I just feel so at home at Christian Life Center. I just love this place. I love the people. I love the way I'm treated. Another guy was saying, yeah, you know, he goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I've gotten through recovery. Now I'm leading, leading a Bible study, a step study. He goes, what's that about? I go, well, the disciple has become the discipler. How cool is that? And you heard me say, I think, I think last week or week before, the good news for all of us that are, if you're new to CLC, the good news is that all the perfect people that planned to come to church here got distracted and never showed up. So we all know we're a work in process. 
Jesus has no tolerance for people who want to act like, well, if you get spiritual enough, if you don't, you're not good enough. And he just, boy, Matthew 23, read that. And then finally, the, what he wants to make very clear is that Jesus is coming soon. And it says in your notes, read, read the signs. In uh, Matthew 24, he starts saying some disturbing things. And I feel for the disciples because, man, Jesus is flipping their world upside down. This last week was not what they thought it was going to be. First of all, they didn't know it was his last week. But, man, when Palm Sunday hit, they're like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. They finally get it. Yeah, I'm with him. Big parade. The whole place is yelling. And it just goes, <sighs> seemingly out of control. And, and so... As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, um, can you tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Lord, you're saying some stuff that's troubling to us. All of a sudden it feels doom and gloom instead of like, here we go. So can you at least give us a hint? Like, let us know when, when this stuff is going to happen so we can brace ourselves. And so... In Matthew 24, Jesus gives a list. I'll, I'll share with you some of the key points on that list. Uh, I encourage you to go read Matthew 24 today. And while you're reading Matthew 24, now I'm a baby boomer. Like when our daughter was in high school, I remember going up to the room one time and she's doing homework and I go, how can you concentrate with music on? She goes, dad, I can't concentrate when it's quiet. A baby boomer doesn't understand that, okay? It's got to be, shh, go to the library, right? But so, I can't get distracted. But, but go ahead and read Matthew 24 and whatever news you like to watch, CNN, Fox, something streaming, go ahead and have the news on because you'll, you won't know if it's Matthew 24 or the news. It's that, it's that, like this. Because you will think Jesus is talking about now. In this, he says, well... One of the signs of me coming is there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Now, I understand Google searches change person to person, but somewhere around 16 nations are currently at war, either within themselves or with other nations. That also fits because he says, uh, nation will be against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And the original words really mean ethnos, ethnic group against ethnic group, that's infighting, as well as kingdom against kingdom, uh, sovereign nations. He says there'll be famines in various places. And again, some 50 million people on the, on the edge of starvation in 46 countries due to famine. There'll be earthquakes in unexpected locations. And you can go ahead and say that. The earthquakes, just the seismic activity continues to go up. I remember, those of you who've been around a long time, remember Bob Rubel, a great guy, a solid believer, had his own insurance agency, was on the board several times. I remember talking to Bob. Bob is the reason I have an earthquake insurance right around my homeowner's policy. Because he asked me if I did. I go, no, why not? He goes, well, don't you believe the Bible? I'm like, yeah. He goes, think of what a great witnessing tool it'll be if Matthew 24 happens in Dayton and your neighbor goes, how did you have the insight to have an earthquake insurance rider on your policy when I don't? I'm going to be able to tell people because Jesus told me that was going to happen. I'm like, okay, Bob, I'm in. So for 85 bucks a year, I'm in there. So... We talked Wednesday night. Jesus said, you'll be hated around the world because of me. 
If you haven't noticed the spirit of anti-Christ, anti-Christian rising up, you've not been listening. Because the problem, and I wish I had the sermon, Dirk and I were talking, he goes, I got to find where you said it. It was in the 90s. I was preaching a series on end times, as I often do. And I made this statement to the church then. Mark my word, we as the church have become the new enemy of our culture. We are there. Secularly speaking, we who believe this book, the morality of this book, the message of this book, we are the problem. We are the hate mongers and, and the bigots. And we are the issue for society. Now that can really bother me and stress me out, but then I have to remind myself, Jesus said this was going to happen. He talked about that in approaching his coming, many Christians would fall away. And many, their love would grow cold. And I think there's a falling away and a love growing cold. COVID didn't help us, but there's so many things that are just distractions in our lives. We had someone from Africa that helped us do a meal pack. And he said, you know, I can see why it's hard for Christians in America to stay Christians because there's just so many things vying for your attention and your passion and your priorities. And Jesus said, many will fall away. And then he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Go back to the early chapters of Genesis around chapter 6 and following. And in the days of Noah, one of the key reasons that God destroyed the world with a flood was because the world was filled with, ready, violence. The Bible says in Psalms, the one who loves violence, my soul hates, God says. And, and then there was sexual immorality that was rampant in the days of Noah. And that is surely the case now beyond what most of us could have dreamed. And there was this partying atmosphere and attitude and priority. And lawlessness, Jesus said, will increase. Have you noticed? There are places now that I don't even want to go visit that I've visited before because, wow, it doesn't sound all that safe. That could freak you out unless I realize, no, Jesus told us this. These are the signs of his coming so we can be ready and prepared, not freaking out in all kinds of fear-filled. And so then he says at the end of chapter 24 in verse 40, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there'll be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. What's that about, you say? Well, I think if I can put two plus two together and get four, I think that is what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Let me read it for you. Theologians call it the rapture of the church. And this description is not in a book like Revelation that's very symbolic and Apocryphal language, hard to understand. This event that's described here is right in the middle of a letter to the church in Thessalonica. It's just, it's just literal description. Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you believe that, say amen. If you believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. So there's going to be this trumpet blast. There's going to be a shout kind of like, we're here. I don't know what they're going to say, all right? There's going to be this shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You're like, this guy believes that? Well, first of all, it's consistent. Because go to the book of Acts, written by a different author, not Paul, not Matthew. And in the book of Acts, Luke records how Jesus left the planet after he was crucified and rose from the dead. He's standing there talking to the disciples, and all of a sudden he just goes, went right up through the clouds. You know, like when you're a kid, you let go of a helium balloon, you watch it go, watch it go. And they just stood there gazing. And angels appear behind them and go, what are you guys gazing at? And they, we just, and they, and the angel said, this same Jesus is going to return in the same way. He went up through the clouds. It's interesting, Paul says, he's going to come back through the clouds. And then Jesus is talking about this scenario where one is taken and one is left. It kind of feels like he's describing this event where those who are followers of Christ, when the rapture happens, first of all, everybody that we have buried that knew Christ, the Bible says when that happens, they're going to rise first. Their body will be resurrected. We learned yesterday in the Holy Spirit, some of the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the one who resurrects us. Their body will be resurrected, reunited with their soul and spirit that's already with Christ, and they'll be complete in a glorified body in heaven for forever. And they go up, and before you can go, what was that? We're going to go up, and we're going to always be with the Lord. And... And you say, I thought that was an educated guy up there. He believes that? I sure do. But see, you got to understand something. I go back to the start of this book, Genesis 1, verse 1. First verse, first chapter of the Bible. And it starts like this. In the beginning, God, that's the assumption, created the heavens and the earth. He is a supernatural God. This is a supernatural book. And I took the leap of faith in Genesis 1, 1, said, I believe that. So it is no leap of faith to believe that this Jesus who promised at the Last Supper on Thursday, he tells his disciples, he can read the room. He knows there's all this tension and anxiety. And what does he say to his followers? Guys, let not your heart be troubled. I'm leaving to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And I will come and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, And I believe Jesus is a promise-keeping God. And if He promised to prepare a place for me, He's preparing it for me and you. If He promised someday He's coming back, someday He is coming back. And He said the King of Heaven is like this guy who left and trusted His followers, all kinds of stuff. And then he had gone a long time, but He's coming back. Jesus left and trusted us with all we could ask for. And after a long time, the, the signs of the times are all around us. He is coming soon. So Matthew 24, verse 42. He says what my mom used to always kind of preach to us. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Mom used to say, heaven's a prepared place for a prepared people. Live ready. And when he comes, someday we will be in his throne, throne room and celebrate Jesus Christ and, and sing our... You, talk, you, think, you think worship was great today? It's going to be incredible there. Stand with us and let's close and give our praise to Christ.